1 Peter 3, we'll be looking at verses 18, 19, and 20. First Peter 3. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just sang a song asking the question, why do we receive anything from this reward of your great salvation? And all we know is the song said that his wounds have paid my rent. There's nothing worth boasting in, nothing this world has to offer, but we boast in Christ and Christ alone and his accomplished work on the cross on our behalf. So may we stand amazed at grace and the mercy that you showered upon us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. Thank you that your word is powerful, that it opens blind eyes to see, that the gospel goes forth with power, power to redeem. So may that always be on our lips. In your son's name we pray. Amen. When we think of difficult things, uh, one of the most, uh, I would call it, this is probably your life lesson, your eye opener from Pastor Tim, difficult things are difficult to do. All right, just remembering that, if that's is your life phrase, that difficult things are difficult to do. And so when you're in place in front of a difficult thing, usually they're left undone, or you pay someone else to go do the difficult thing, and they usually get paid really well because who wants to, whether climb down into a septic tank or something else like that. And so they get paid well compared to those who are not willing to do the most difficult thing. When it comes to the Word of God, there's a few passages, and I want to make sure you understand we underline few passages of Scripture that are a little bit more difficult to understand than others. But just because they're difficult to understand does not mean we avoid them, or we just go, and uh, let's just skirt through that. Uh, One of the joys of going verse by verse through a book is you get to um, dive into what the text gives you. Uh, You don't get to pick what you're going to talk about. The text tells you what you're going to talk about. Uh, I knew this passage of scripture that we were going to talk about was coming many, many weeks ago when we sat down and worked through that, and um, I'm excited that it's here for you. You, I don't know if you'll be excited by the time we're done that we walk through this, but uh, this passage of scripture here, as I was sharing with the Sunday school class, there there is no majority view on this passage of scripture in the Christian tradition of theology and discourse. Uh, This does not mean that theologians don't have any idea what to do with it. They just don't have a final, like, okay, this is what we, you know, we're kind of moving forward in this. Because I would say there's some aspects of this passage that are a little uncertain or unclear exactly what Peter is talking about. And then when you start diving into that part of, okay, let's dig into this part or that part about it, it can take you on another journey that you end up who knows where, and it can be a little bit confusing. One of the joys of it is, though, is because we truly do believe that this is the Word of God given for our edification, and it is not acceptable to go, well, that's hard, we'll let, and move on. So let's read the text here, because the title of the sermon is literally dealing with difficult texts, and we've got two of them right in front of us, and so let's, uh, let's begin here in verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he must bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit 
in which he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And you go, oh, Tim, I know exactly what that is all talking about in detail. Well, we're going to have some fun today ripping apart this passage and exploring it. But before we do that, though, I want to give you just four simple principles of biblical interpretation. So how do we interpret the Bible? What are the, if you want to call it, the guidelines that we are, according to the Bible, bound by? All right. The first one that we are bound by is context. All right. You have the immediate context. So like, what does it say in the preceding verses? that you can't get a di totally different meaning than what the preceding verses are telling you about, all right? And then you have the, I would call it the slightly broader context, and this is two different ways. You have the context of what Peter's talking about in his epistle. Then you have the more broader context that it's being talked about in the New Testament. And then you have even the greater context where we have all of Scripture playing out. And so in the way you look at context is you need to keep it in context of what is the message of the Bible. And so what you don't want to do is come to a conclusion over here that the Bible does not even in its context talk about. So like to give you an example, if there seemed to be, like let's say you took a passage of scripture completely out of context, I'll give you an example, the fool says in his heart there is no God. If you just remove the fool part and just says there is no God, you would say the Bible claims there is no God. But the broader context would give you the fool says in his heart there is no God. The even broader context would be Genesis 1-1 that assumes in the beginning God created the world. So you, by just looking at context, you'd be able to help you figure out that no, this is not what it's talking about. Another one. When common sense makes perfect sense, we seek no other sense. So when common sense makes perfect sense, you don't keep looking for some other understanding. And I'll give you a very easy one. That for some reason, there's a lot of people that trip over this. Turn your Bibles here to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1 here, we're going to look at common sense. And we will, by God's grace, need not need to seek any other. So when it comes to the creation of the world, and we wonder the time period of when it was all done, you look at Genesis 1-5, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning, there was the first day. You go over to chapter 1, verse 8, and then God called the expanse heaven, there was evening and morning, there was a second day. You can go down to verse 13, and there was evening and morning the third day, and it keeps going on and on and on. I believe without a doubt this is one of those principles when common sense makes perfect sense, you don't need to seek any other sense. It is very clear by this passage that Moses, when he was writing, is talking about a day. But he literally goes out of your way to say morning and evening, we've got a day. Now, you may not like that. You may want to try to read into the way you're seeing the world long periods of time, but that's not what the text says. The text is very clear saying we have a day happening here. It even gives you the bookmarks of it. Evening and morning, we have day, and it goes on and on and on. And then there's other passages that when Jesus is talking about the day, he said just like the earth was created in this, we have seven days of a week. You know, one we rest and six we do our work, just like, and he refers back to creative order. Next, another principle of interpretation is that clear passages interpret unclear passages. Clear passages interpret unclear passages. So when we have a passage that is a little bit unclear, you need to go to a passage that is clear to help you understand this. And 
We're not going to get into this this week, but in a two weeks from now, we'll be looking at verse 21 in 1 Peter 3. Here's what it says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. All right. Well, Tim, didn't you just get done saying when common sense makes perfect sense, seek no other sense? Well, then we get to verse 21. We'll be preaching that baptism is regenerational. No, we're not going to be preaching that because that way you say, well, this seems a little unclear what he's talking about here. Let's just go to one passage of scripture. Paul and Silas are in the jail. They, the, the earth shakes. They're standing right before this centurion that's standing there. And he cries out, what must I do to be saved? And what do they say? Be baptized. No, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And we start looking at other passages of scripture that talk about this. And so we still have to deal with that, which I'm not giving you my, my interpretation of that. We still got to deal with that later. Like, what do you do when Peter says this thing? What is he talking about in this passage? But we can't just go ignore that he said what he said. But we take that in lieu of other things, other passages of scripture that are clearly taught to help us understand some that are not and last but not least, we need to come to these passages of Scripture with a humble heart. We don't come in flying in and saying, all right, here's a passage of Scripture a little bit hard to understand. I know exactly what it means, and everybody just needs to bow down at, the, you know, at Tim's opinion. We don't stand there and say, in my humble and accurate opinion, let me tell you where this stands. We come to it with a humble heart. So that all being said, now we're going to see some of these principles play out. But remember, these principles all go together. They're not just one and one alone that you look at. These principles help bind one another as you get to more difficult texts. So let's look at the end of verse 18 here. If you notice, last week we stopped at that he might bring us to God. And so here's the part that we have in front of us. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What we see here in verse 18 is Christ is suffering for sins. He is, he is put to death in the flesh. And how does he rise again? In the spirit. So we don't have a bodily resurrection, right? Because doesn't that make common sense here? Because if you look at this, it sounds like he dies in the flesh, but what does he do? He just comes back in a spirit form, and now he's just interacting with all of these, okay? So now we have to ask ourselves, what is the context of this passage? Because it sounds here, on the very outworking of it, well, we have to ask ourselves, what, how does Peter talk about this? So let's stay in 1 Peter Let's go to verse 3 of chapter 1. 1 Peter 3, 1. 1 Peter 3, 1 says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfade, kept in heaven for you. This word resurrection literally means a bodily rising from the dead. So he uses the term resurrection here, referring to the word resurrection means you were once dead, now you are literally alive. Now, if you're trying to figure out, well, maybe he's not using it in the same way. Are there other contexts that we can go to that will prove that Peter here is not trying to change the church's traditional teaching that Jesus rose from the dead bodily? If he died bodily, did he raise from the dead bodily? Another one that you can go to, which is not one of the passages we'll go to, is literally Peter comes to the, temp to the tomb and finds what? It's empty. Okay, so either Peter forgot that it was empty and he's trying to teach something else, or there's something more here. But before we go any further, though, I want to go to the very clear teaching found in Luke 24. Luke 24, 39. 
And remember, Peter is an eyewitness to this. Luke 24, and we'll pick up on verse 39. Jesus uh, comes among them. Remember, these guys just got back from the road to Emmaus. And Jesus is going to come and stand among them. And he says, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Because obviously they were afraid. They thinking they may have seen a spirit. What does Jesus say to help them show that they had not seen a spirit? He says, see my hands and my feet. Touch them and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have. He's literally debunking literally what you may have heard if you're not following what Peter's talking about. You may be going, well, he's very clearly saying he rose again bodily. He's like, I don't, I'm not a spirit. I have flesh and bones. And he says, and he showed him his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieve for joy, they're marveling. He's going to say to them, no, it literally is me. This is not a, a ghost of some sort. He says, give me some food. And he eats the food in front of them. All right. Already making sure clear, we have a bodily resurrected Christ. And not even, even going on for that, saying in the New Testament here, I want to talk about this body issue here. 1 Corinthians 15, 44. Paul here, when he's speaking about the resurrection of the body, and when Paul is speaking, will the dead be raised, he reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, he says, it is sown a natural body, is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there's also a spiritual body. And he goes on to say, this is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a living spirit. But there's not a spirit that is first, but natural, then spirit. The first man from the earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. As the man of dust, so also there are those who are of dust, and this is the man of heaven. Those who are of heaven, just as they are born in the image of the man of dust, shall bear the image of the man of heaven. He's literally talking about you one day will have a glorified body. You will not be like you are now. So back to our text. What do we do with this passage of Scripture here? That when Peter says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Well, hopefully, as we look at these biblical interpretations, we would see pretty clearly we're not having a spiritual resurrection. We're literally having a bodily resurrection. So what is Peter talking about here? In short and simple, I would talk about the Jesus that he's speaking here is that, that Jesus' new body after his resurrection, just like one day you will have a new body. He was raised in the spirit. This could also, there's two possibilities with this text you, there's some that like to interpret raised by the Spirit, like the Spirit rose him from the dead. Also clarifying, it could be also said raised in the Spirit, meaning either through the power of the Spirit or just like you one day will have a new body. He had that new body as well, and now he is uh, resurrected in a glorified body. Uh, and so what we see here in this text is that I believe Peter is alluding to the fact that one day we will have a glorified body just like Jesus has a glorified body, because you go into then verse 19, which is an even interest, more interesting passage. Speaking of Christ here, he says, He goes and proclaims to spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, and a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. So now, we have to start asking ourselves some questions. But before we do that, I almost found this amazingly comical 
So I was using about four different commentaries just to hear what these guys had to say, and I got four different opinions anyway. But all four of them started out with this quote. Here's what the quote is from Martin Luther. A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So I do not know for certain just what Peter means. All right, they all started off with that going like, this is a passage of scripture. We're not really sure what he means. And they quote Martin Luther to say, like even Luther didn't really grasp what Peter was saying here. So we're at least in good company with other people that are going like, this is a, a little bit difficult text. And so we start off by asking questions. One of the things is you're studying the Bible, you need to learn how to ask questions because you remember bad questions give you bad answers. You need to learn, start, what are, what's going on here? So you see in your notes there, I gave some questions. So these are things we have to ask ourselves. So in which he, so we know that he is referring to Jesus, all right, because of the previous text. He went and proclaimed to spirits in prison. So you underline where, what is the spirits in prison? Like, well, what does the Bible talk about spirits in prison? Well, there's two terms it can use. It can either be talking about human beings because Sometimes the Bible talks about us as spirits. We're also going to be talking about literally spirits, like angels and demons. All right, so like, who is he talking to? And these, also on top of that, these spirits are actually in prison. What does that look like? Where is this prison? All right, these are the questions you need to ask. Even on more to that, what is Jesus proclaiming? Okay, like what he's going and proclaiming something to these spirits that are in prison. What does he proclaim? And then the question, another question that we ask is, when did this proclamation happen? All right, is it happening in the days of Noah? Is it happening during uh, the death of Christ and the resurrection? Because we have some resurrection verbiage going on there. Made alive in the spirit. Remember, he was dead in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Is Peter referring to this is some activity that Jesus did in between his death and resurrection? Or some may even say, is this happening now? Is this something that's ongoing happening? So what we're going to do here, I'm going to show you, hopefully by God's grace, uh, there are three main views on this passage here. So I'll give you the three main views, and then I'll tell you where I lightly stand. All right, so here's what we have in this. So we have to deal with this when God was patiently waiting in the days of Noah. All right, you just can't throw that out because let, let's be honest, the flood is a pretty big thing. All right, it is a catastrophe. It is a time where God looked at the world and he saw we had one man righteous, Noah, and everyone else, the sin was so bad, he destroyed the world. We have a massive human catastrophe, death and destruction everywhere. The thing you paint nurseries with, right? Massive catastrophes, right? Where... God is destroying mankind because of his sin. And that's a major thing that happened. Here's because here's let's think through this. Noah's standing there for hundreds of for over a hundred years proclaiming that God's going to destroy the earth. No one believes except for his eight fam, eight people in the family that are saved. And what's and we have death and destruction. Noah literally standing here saying, Look to this way of salvation. Here is your way of salvation. All right. Which Noah is point view one is that Christ preached through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. So the first view is that Noah is standing as a type of Christ, as a type of Christ yet to come, 
that Noah is pointing, just like Christ pointed to the cross, like here's salvation. Noah is standing here pointing to all of those who were there listening to him, the way of salvation. And so some will see this and you go, well, where do you see this? Well, here's why this view has some traction. Turn to 1 Peter 3, oh, sorry, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. So what we see here is concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, search and inquired carefully. Peter, some, some would argue that what Peter's doing here is reminding of Noah, who was a form of prophet, because what was he prophesying? Destruction was going to come, and here is the way of salvation. All right, and he prophesied there concerning inquiring what person or time the Spirit in of Christ in, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in a substantial glory. So some would argue this too, that in this, you go to verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven to which angels long to look. And so what some would argue that what we see here is that Noah, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah, where he was proclaiming what he was proclaiming, and that he would refer to then, what, what do you do with these spirits in prison? People would argue that these spirits in prison are the ones who, after that were destroyed in the fall and the flood, and are now in prison. This is how Noah was proclaiming the truth to these people. So that would be view number one, that Christ preached through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. Second, you will have a view that Christ here, who are these souls in prison and who is, what is he proclaiming? That Christ preached to the Old Testament saints who died and were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. Um, turn your Bibles real quick to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 4, 8 and 9. It says, therefore it says, speaking of Christ, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower parts of earth. He who descended is, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might, be, that he might fill all things. So real quick here, they will use the, past, the people that hold the second view would hold this, that when Jesus died on the cross... In between his death and resurrection, what he does is he goes down into this place, this prison area here, and he proclaims salvation to the souls that are in this prison here, bringing many of them out and leading them captive, that were captive, and now he's releasing them because of his death and resurrection. Um, and you're going to get a little bit of groundwork in that because um, in the Apostles' Creed, many of the, the opening... Um, the first Apostles' Creed, in it had descended into the grave. Later on, you would have the Apostles' Creed added to it, which is not biblical, but comes from biblical principles. The Apostles' Creed said descended into, the, into hell. And you'd get people trying to teach then that he descended into hell. He preaches to the people that are in hell at that time and leads them captive. Um, I understand where some people might get this understanding, but there's, I would argue there's a clear teaching in Scripture that I would argue very strongly it goes against this. We do not know much about where Jesus was when his death and resurrection, but we do know one thing for clear. He's on the cross, and he looks to the thief who just gets saved and says, Today, I'll be with you in paradise. All right? And so before we speculate and start diving into where he went and all these other things, here's one thing we're very clear about. 
at least that day, where was Jesus? In paradise, all right? And that's where we need to make sure we don't speculate to get ourselves so twisted in, in all these other areas. So again, the first one is, this is Christ preaching through Noah. Second, this is Christ preaching to saints in between his death and resurrection. And the third is Christ proclaiming victory and judgment over evil angels, evil spirits. Uh, you see this here back in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.22. Listen to uh, what the text says. He who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and power have been subject to him. Some would argue, saying in the original, con in the context here, the very immediate context, what we have is that Christ comes and he proclaims to the spirits in prison, they would argue the spirits in prison being fallen angels, with the patience of, of the, that even Noah had in that day, showing them that he has conquered and has won, showing that they have no power, that they have been subject to him as the chapter concludes that Christ is proclaiming victory to the, angel the demonic hosts that were present at that time. All right, and so we have roughly three views, all of them roughly saying this, if I could summarize it in a second, saying that Christ is proclaiming victory through his son. I mean, Christ is proclaiming victory through himself and found victory is found only in him and him alone. But I want to, what I want to do is I know that some of you may be completely and utterly lost. Some of you may still be tracking with me. Either way, whichever you're going, I want to take a moment here and just work ourselves to the theme of 1 Peter and try to help you bring a conclusion to what do you do when you get to this passage here. Because here's what can happen. And this is, this is a bandwagon that's kind of fun to fall off onto. So you have people like, what are they talking about, these evil spirits? And so now you're going to go back to Genesis, and you're going to talk about this group called the Nephilim, and everything else is just going on, and what happened here, what happened there. And before you know it, you are so speculating all these other things that you are so lost, and I would call it you're so deep into your own navel that you don't even know where you're going type of deal. And you're going to go, let's just pause here for a second and see the mass of the big picture of what Peter is trying to tell us. Here's what Peter's trying to say. You are exiles and sojourners going through a land of suffering. You will suffer while you're going through this, but this. Follow the example of, of Christ. Entrust yourself to God. He has won and he will keep you to the end. Because I would even argue, look at the way this passage says. There was only eight people, but they were brought safely through water. Christ is proclaiming victory. And in this victory he's proclaiming, he is saving even the smallest little group of people. Because if you have a worldwide catastrophe, what you have is, will anyone make it? And the answer is what? Yes. Because God is faithful and he has proclaimed that we have the victory. Because even at whatever he's proclaiming to these lost in, these spirits in prison, what we do know that he is proclaiming that he has redeemed and he is victorious. And so if you want to ask, where do, where do I stand on all of these? I would say somewhere around the one and three of those. Because at the end, wherever Tim concludes on this really does not matter at all. But here's what I would encourage us to remember. Christ has conquered. And this proclamation I see as a proclamation of victory. This is not a proclamation of, of anything other than Christ has won, it has been accomplished. Nothing more needs to be done. Next, we see the unbelievable patience of God. 
we see that long-suffering of God that in the days of Noah, for a hundred years, Noah is preaching. And what do we see even now? The patience of God. The long-suffering of God. Not to be used or excused or exploited, but what is the long-suffering of God meant to do? Draw sinners to repentance. But yet many times we can, if we're not careful, just go, well, they had a hundred years and we become lazy instead of realizing that, is a, that time period was used to call people to salvation. Also, too, that even though there was mass destruction because of sin, that God is faithful to bring eight persons safely through water. Think through that for a second. The massive upheaval that happened during the worldwide flood, the destruction all over the place that was going on, that God in his faithfulness kept these eight souls faithful because he was faithful to what he had promised to them. And not only that, as Peter writes to a group of people that are exiles and sojourners, that are small in number most likely, that they see the destruction of the world around them, what better encouragement is there that God has proclaimed victory, that he is patient, and that he is working to bring you safely home? And as I look at through some of these things and I sit there and go, remember this. Remember what the cross has accomplished. Remember what that proclamation was. The proclamation, without a doubt, was that Christ has conquered. We no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to fear our sins. We know that they have been paid for. And so when we run into difficult texts like this, we can sit there and we can contemplate these things, or we can say, this is what we do know. We do know that Christ is one. And we do know that we've been called to proclaim this message and that God will save. I've enjoyed wrestling through this text. There were so many things that we could have talked about that would have caused you to scratch your head. And I would have been scratching my head too as we look at all these things. But there's a passage of scripture that always helps encourage me. Deuteronomy 29.29 is not my life verse, but it's about as close as you can get to it. That the hidden things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children. And so as we look at some of these, and even though there is yet to be a full understanding of this, and as some people like to say, when we get to heaven, we'll ask, I'll be honest, when we get to heaven, you won't care. All right, you'll be with your Savior. All of these things, you'll go, well, duh, this is what that meant, right? And we'll go, and I'll go, what? All right, we got a whole lot more to be doing right now than to be debating over what Peter had to say here. But the encouraging thing is this. Here's what I want to encourage you. Hopefully, by God's grace, when we looked at each one of these views, you saw that they are at least arguing from Scripture why they hold what they hold. All right, notice we didn't go to like, and it said in the local newspaper this, all right? We're using Scripture to wrestle with Scripture. You following how that works? And I would encourage you, this is why we can trust Scripture. It is not as if as people who give their lives to studying, it's not they're going, we have no idea what it means. It's saying it could mean three different things here. But that does not mean we have to run and go, well, no one can understand the Bible. These are just fun things to dive into it and to keep digging because we can trust the Scripture. We can understand these things. But there will come a day when there's some things in Scripture we're going, I'm not necessarily sure how this all plays out. And I would argue it is not because Scripture is not clear, and I'll point it myself, it's because we're slow to understand and to, under, and to grasp. I mean, how many times did Jesus say to his own disciples when they're sitting there and he starts talking about bread, and what do they do? They look around and go, oh, who forgot to bring the meal? 
All right, and then Jesus is like, I'm not even talking about that. This is what I'm talking about. Or the times where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he literally says, listen, guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed, and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. And he says this over and over, and all of a sudden, Jesus dies, and what do they do? I wonder what's going to happen, right? And then all of a sudden he rises from the dead and they go, oh, well, that's what it meant. And we see these guys in that go, oh, that's what it meant. With boldness proclaiming the truth, they were going, we were blind to these things. Now we see it and now we proclaim it. So my, my prayer is that even though this passage of scripture, if you ever, if you have an idea of what you think it means, I am more than willing to sit down and talk to you about it. I would love to go down those rabbit trails. One of the guys I literally read, he said, when you walk this Pastor Scripture, you have one line on the text, one foot on the text. And he goes, but where you put this other foot can cause you to fall off majorly. All right, just keep your foot on the text and just say what the text says, because very quickly you can dive into the into abyss that you will never get back from. All right. And so I would encourage you. That's why we take these biblical principles and we guide them and they guard us. And so my prayer is, beloved, listen, the word of God is Beautiful, it is true, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword that can divide all the way down through. So when we come across these small, minute texts that we're still going, what is Peter talking about here? It should not cause us to run and panic and say, we have no idea what we're talking about. What it should do is say, I have an opportunity now to put in these biblical principles into play, and then finally at the end, live a life of humble submission and saying, I'm not an no way am I the expert on this. I need to learn from others, and I need to study the Word of God to understand it even more. Now, all that being said, by God's grace, I think we're going to, when we're, when we're done Peter, which will just be in a short moment, according to eternity, when we are done with Peter, our, my plan is to work through the book of Genesis. So for all of you Nephilim people out there that are wondering what that means and all these other things, and if you have no idea what it means, you'll have an opinion, I'm sure, by the time we get to them. All right, we'll hit that when we go through Genesis, because we have to, because we're going to go through the text. But what I want to do and encourage you in this, we know this, that at the end of the day, we have been called to faithfully and obediently follow our Savior, Jesus Christ. The cross has accomplished our salvation. We no longer need to fear. We can trust him and him alone for our salvation. So look to him, the author and perfecter of your faith. That being said, let's pray and then we'll worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for these wrestles that we get to wrestle through. Thank you for texts like this that show us our own frailty Show us our our lack of understanding the full counsel and may this drive us to dig in deeper even more. Thank you that your son went and proclaimed to spirits in prison the glorious resurrection, the glorious salvation. Thank you that you were patient in the days of Noah, calling men to follow the only path to salvation, which was the ark, which is a beautiful picture of you and your son. And dearly Father, we just stand amazed that you would redeem it all, sinners like us. May you be glorified and may you be honored. We ask these things in your son's name we pray. Amen. You could stand with us then as we sing.